Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Patience Adamu. And I'm Curtis Vermont, and this is The Drip, a podcast about political decision-making during a racial revolution. Stay tuned as we parse through the weekly decisions being made by our political leaders that impact the Black community. You ready? Let's do it. Today we'll be discussing Black people being disproportionately stopped and assaulted by police, the TPS's interim chief's apology to Devontae Miller and the Black community, and why it's not enough, Black hairstyles being shunned due to white standards, and a whole lot more. So what's going on, everybody? Why don't we get right to it? Black people are disproportionately arrested and assaulted by Toronto police. Ah, yes. And the sky is blue. <laughs> right. This ain't news, but it's good that the Ontario Human Rights Tribunal wants to keep the conversation on anti-Black racism going. Here's what Ina Chada, interim chief of the OHRC, had to say. The likelihood of a Black person being shot by police in Toronto is just as high as for a Black person in the average city in the U.S. I mean, should I just move to Chicago right now or what? The time for debate about whether systemic racism or anti-Black racism exists is over. The report found that despite the fact that Black people represent only about 8.8% of the city's population, we represented almost a third of all charges. And by the way, this report was part two of the same report that informed us that between 2013 and 2017 in Toronto, Black people were 20 times more likely to be killed by police than white people. Scott Wortley, who led the research, also pointed out that the gap between how cops treat Blacks versus everyone else can't be explained away by racial differences in criminal history, behavior towards police at the time of the incident, weapons use, mental illness, being intoxicated, or local crime rates. Here's another problem. Even if we aren't assaulted by cops, think of traffic stops, right? Blacks are more likely to receive more tickets than anyone else. And that's actually something that I kind of wanted to touch on. So patients, have you had run-ins with the police? And if so, what has the experience generally been like for you? What's really interesting is that over the years, I've had run-ins with police in different spaces. So for a long time, I lived in in Jungle, also known as the Lawrence Heights community. I also used to live at Weston Road and, and Finch. And Ooh, in Weston Road flows, my guy. Yes, fam. Yes, fam. <laughs> So when I was in the West or in Jungle or in Rex, the way that I was treated was very differently than when I've had interactions with police elsewhere. So I've been called names by police. Like I've been treated very brutally by police while in some of these communities. It hasn't been great. And as a result, anytime, even if I'm stopped by police, you know, in Whitby or in Mississauga or in Niagara, uh, I still have that very visceral reaction where I'm, I'm terrified. What about you? I, I totally hear that. Um, you know, my experiences with, with police have been, I think they all have occurred back when I was driving. So, you know, a, an effect of that is probably that I, I experienced driving while black. Um, 
And what jumped out at me, what I wanted to kind of talk about is like, how many tickets do black people get that they don't actually, that they're not actually warranted to receive? I mean, I think back to an accident I got back in 2013 and, you know, I was young and dumb and I totaled my car, but I received four or five tickets patients that totaled just under $12,000 in fees. No, what? $12,000 in fees. Um, I remember specifically when the the OPP officer handed me the the tickets and that's tickets. You know, I was kind of like, you didn't even have to give me like two of these. You just did it because you could. Me reading this report now, I have to think back to that moment because initially I would say, well, you know, he was pretty respectful and, you know, he wasn't rude or anything like that. So, you know, racism probably wasn't at play, but this report makes very clear that black people get more charges. Those charges end up being thrown out. It's the black tax, right? It's, it's, it's the fact that there's power that can be used and thus the power is used. Last week, or I guess a couple of weeks now, patients, uh, we heard that uh, the, the, the new interim chief of the Toronto police came out saying that, you know, the TPS really messed up and uh, they really should have informed the SIU back when DeFonte Miller initially lost an eye because that is the reason for invoking the SIU in the first place. And the interim chief tried to make it seem like there was a disconnect between whether or not police officers should engage the SIU whenever there is a assault or any sort of violence from police, whether or not the person is in uniform or not. So look, man, Desmond Cole, he's not having any of that, right? (laughs) Here's what he said in response. This is what accountability looks like in 2020. Permanently disabling a black young man, and then three and a half years later saying, maybe we should have called someone. It's disgusting. Desmond also pointed to many unanswered questions that remain about the case, right? For <laughs> we were just talking about this patient's, for example, regarding Constable Thero's father, John. You know, he was a senior TPS officer who worked at that time in the Service of Professional Standards. Did he have anything to do with the obstruction of justice? Well, we know that he probably did. Yes. But the interim police chief said nothing about that. It's all scapegoating, scapegoating, scapegoating. It's a step in the right direction for the interim police chief to to begin to kind of crack open the seal of accountability. But that's not how this works, right? We are now in an era where we need more. We need total transparency. We need total accountability. And I'm not sure that that we're going to get that, Curtis. It seems like as a system, we are going to continue to be in the dark and that they're going to wait, you know, three and a half years, five years later, so that it doesn't hurt as much. We're not as angry about what's happening. We'll see how things go. We're talking about whether or not this movement is sustainable. There are some good signs. This isn't one of them. I'll be pretty direct about it, to be honest. Moving on to the economy and talking about more of what we already know, Black women who wear traditional hairstyles like afros, braids, or twists are less likely to get interviews, let alone a good paying job, according to studies from Duke University. Participants in the study, which was carried out by researchers from Duke's Fuqua School of Business, perceived natural Black hairstyles as less professional 
and the effect was particularly pronounced in industries where a more conservative red-white appearance is common. In the aftermath of George Floyd's murder and the corresponding protests, many organizations have rightly focused on tactics to help eradicate racism at the structural level, said researcher Ashley Shelby Rosette. But our individually held biases often precede the type of racist practices that become embedded and normalized within organizations. Case in point, patients, I don't know if you heard about this, but the Jamaican Supreme Court, that's Jamaica of all places, decided that dreads were not allowed in schools constitutionally honestly Tom, i thought i thought dreads i thought i thought dreads came from jamaica like i thought that dreads were attributed to that culture that is who that is literally who we are <laughs> <laughs> and this is coming from a supreme court where everybody still wears blonde wigs there's a quote from marcus garvey he said it long ago And it's very important to grasp in order to understand how change can come. He said, we have to emancipate ourselves from mental slavery. Clearly, that applies to these Supreme Court judges. Post-colonialism and white supremacy is so deep. Like, it runs so deep, blinding people to whatever their own perceptions of professionalism are and and you nailed it right on the head Curtis when you said professionalism red white we cannot look at their hair at at their hair color and 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 strive to to manipulate our hair to look like that in order to be perceived as professional that is not the standard unacceptable totally unacceptable So a really big thing happened in the world this last week. Kamala Harris becomes the first woman of color to be the running mate or the vice presidential candidate on the Democratic ticket. Kamala Harris is the daughter of an Indian American and an African American and, you know, to, to me and, and hopefully to you, Curtis, this seems like a big deal, right? I think it's important for representation, yes. But conversations have kind of come up about, does this really matter? Does it matter to be the VP? Two political scientists who have studied the issue, Christopher Devine and Kyle Kopko, write, while most voters say that the choice of a running mate will be important in deciding their vote, very few can recall a time when it actually changed their vote. At the same time... Uh, To play devil's advocate, the selection of a running mate, sometimes called the first presidential act, can influence perceptions of the candidate's own qualities of character or judgment, and this, in turn, can make a difference electorally. I think it's important to consider, you know, the prospects of a VP, because we have to remember, Biden was a VP. Biden was Obama's VP, and now here he is. Well, that's exactly it, right? And, you, you know, you mentioned whether or not a VP is actually really important, and you, you, you approach the question from a different angle. Another angle is whether or not the VP is important um, to the actual decision-making of the U.S. administration. And the reality is that it, it entirely depends on who the president is in the day. Right. So under Barack Obama, for example, Joe Biden had a lot of power. He had a lot of responsibility, and I would argue that as a result, the administration was pretty successful, right? 
Right. Uh, then we have Bush before him, where that VP also had a lot of power. Um, obviously, if you're more a conservative voter or more Republican voter, not even that, if you're more of a neoconservative, then you'll say, wow, that VP being Dick Cheney had a lot of power and he got a lot of things done, right? But there are other administrations where the VP hasn't had any voice at all. And so we'll have to wait and see how things go. But you did touch on uh, Biden's character, his qualities. And quite frankly, I do think that um, Kamala is going to have a lot of power, a lot of uh, responsibility in this coming administration, if, of course, they're elected. And I think she's quite complementary to his skills and his strengths. Uh, she really is more of, of that orator and more of that kind of change, dream, progressive kind of image, whereas Biden isn't, isn't really that. Biden's more of like a guy you'd like to have a beer with, which, is, which has proven to be really um, helpful in, in American elections. You think so? A guy you'd like to have a beer with? I think so. I think, yeah. I mean, I think he's kind of like also very grandpa-like, um, but like, like a grandpa you'd have a beer with. No? You don't think so? You don't think he's like laid back, casual? Yeah, in that respect, he is a fairly casual guy. I do like his down-to-earth demeanor. Yeah. Um, I think that you want that in leaders, whether just regardless of how accomplished they are, you want them to be down-to-earth and able to connect, and he's very good at that. I guess when I heard, you know, the, the concept about beer, I was just thinking, like, he's a lot more than that. He is a really uh, intelligent and accomplished person. He's not a, he's not a, what is it? What was it back in 2008? Joe the... Joe the plumber. <laughs> yes. Yeah. He's yeah. not a Joe the plumber. He's not a Joe the plumber. Yeah. But I think similarly to Clinton, Bill, <laughs> similarly to Bill Clinton, he's, <laughs> he's kind of like, you know, this really smart guy who you'd like to have a beer with, like who you just like yeah. to chill with and, and talk to. Right after Harris was named Biden's running mate, something really strange happened. The U.S. prison stocks started to soar, climb, skyrocket. Interestingly enough, the last time something like this happened was after Trump won the election in 2016. Hmm. What this is suggesting is that prison stocks go up when there is an expectation that more people will be sent to prison as a result of a political decision or, or political change. So I don't know what the the tie is but this is a developing story and we will be revisiting this in future weeks spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine with the weather warming up it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a pilates class or outdoor guided walk Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And we always have our black, blackity black news. And, and a lot has kind of happened in the last little while. 
Uh, actually, at the top of the month, we forgot to mention to you folks that the Toronto Police Service Union President, Mike McCormack, retired. I was like, Dick McDickerson did what? <laughs> it's been a long run. He retired after four terms as president and 35 years in policing. McCormick, unfortunately, says he will continue to help the board. <laughs> Why can't he just go away for good? Go away. <laughs> he says he will continue to help the board and continue to help the interim president of the, the Toronto P- Police Service Union, Brian Callanan. And, you know, I do hope that, that Brian doesn't listen to Mike and that this is an opportunity for change. We know that anytime there is an issue involving a a Toronto police service officer, Mike is there front and center defending a lack of transparency and a lack of accountability. And hopefully this will be an opportunity for some pivoting. It is interesting to note that both Mark Saunders and him apparently decided to leave out of nowhere. So, I mean, you know, my gut tells me that big change is coming and they weren't appropriate for that change. But the question is, what does that change look like? Now, I have to assume that because both Mark Saunders and Mike McCormick were thrown out, that the change is going to be more in line with what anti-Black racism protesters have been calling for, or Black Lives Matter protesters have been calling for. But we'll, I guess, kind of have to wait and see. Have you seen anything about what Brian Callanan is all about? Not a single thing. But I will say that the, the lack of stories may be indicative of a, a cleaner slate. I'm not going to say a blank slate, but a cleaner slate. Because we know that Mike McCormick, his father was a, a Toronto Police Service Chief before he became the, the president of the union. So there was a long legacy of decision making there. And hopefully that has been removed and we, we're, we're getting some, some fresh blood. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll see what this fresh blood does. If they muddy the water or... Add some clarity. So we are starting to reopen the province, reopen the country. But in Toronto, 83% of people with COVID-19 are non-white, are racialized people. So we're starting to see questions and see conversations and think pieces about, is COVID over because it's over for white people? Is this a racist reopening? And are the decisions to put children at risk and put older folks at risk and to carry on as usual, do they discard the lives of Black people, people of color? Just something to think about, but it it is something that that is ongoing and we're acting as though COVID-19 is over, but the cases of COVID-19 continue and those cases continue to affect people of color disproportionately. I want people to understand, especially those who aren't Black who might be listening, that, you know, when, when, when we say what patients just said, for example, putting into perspective whether or not the reopening is inherently racist, it's, you know, it's not that we're necessarily thinking that our leaders, whether at the provincial level or the municipal level or federal level, whatever, are saying, how do we kill those Black people? It's not that. But, you know, if we know, like patients just pointed out, that 83% of people in Toronto that have COVID are marginalized, are people of color, 
And we also know that just overall, those who have been affected by the pandemic are those who are people of color. They don't have white collar jobs, for example. They don't have nice places to live. They're usually in cramped quarters with others. They're usually trying to survive day by day, week by week. If we know these things, then why aren't we acting like it and making changes to make life better for them? And that's what it is. That's what, that's where the anger comes from. We know these problems exist, but our leaders aren't listening. That's what we want you to think about. If, if you weren't consistently being listened to, how would you feel? Think about that. In maybe lighter news, uh, Digital Doors Open Ontario is offering virtual tours of some of Ontario's most important Black historic sites. According to Ontario's Heritage Trust, quote, growing demand to learn about Black culture and experiences has proved a boon for historic sites that commemorate Canada's Black history and community, end quote. But of course, with COVID-19 putting a stop to the organization's annual cultural tourism program, Doors Open Ontario, Staff had to come up with a new online offering that offers visitors the chance to explore sites wherever and whenever they choose. So visitors can explore the stories of slaves who escaped their American captors and fled to Canada to begin a new free life, and Black settlers who established communities, built churches, and helped others escape through the Underground Railroad. This sounds excellent. I know of three Black history museums in Ontario that will be involved in Indoors Open Ontario and their virtual offerings. But I want to be clear that all of the stories of Black settlers in Canada are not about slaves escaping their American captors and coming up, you know, following the North Star through the Underground Railroad. Canadians, white Canadians, treated Black immigrants, whether they were you know, escaping from the U.S. or coming from Jamaica or coming from, from other parts of, of uh, the Americas, they treated us like shit. Yep. So, and they continue to treat us like shit. Yep. Um, even after we, we've been here, uh, some, some Black people, particularly those from, from um, Southern Ontario and Nova Scotia, have been here for eight to ten generations. Yep. So let's be clear that all of these stories are not just happy stories about how Canada saved Black settlers or Black people, um, but that there was uh, a really long period of, of, of suffering uh, and oppression and, and racism. I'm happy that you're making that clear. And I, it, it made me think of um, when I watched Desmond Cole's uh, The Skin We're In uh, two or three years ago, whenever it first came out. And I remember the scene uh, where he was in Nova Scotia, and I forget the exact town that he was in. It wasn't Africville. Um, but the, 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 the exact town that he included in the movie, um, it was a town, <clears throat> it was a town that former Black slaves turned soldiers who fought for the British Army and who were, quote, given their freedom, or at least they were supposed to be given their freedom, they were told that they would go to Nova Scotia or they could go to Nova Scotia and would be given land. They were not given land. 
And as a result, they had to start their own town. And uh, even still, the white folks weren't happy so much so that there were race riots in Nova Scotia. So that just puts into perspective that racism has always, I mean, we know this, but we need to stop saying that racism didn't exist in Canada to the same extent as it did in the United States, because effectively it did. Absolutely. Speaking of the anti-racism movement, I want to touch on its sustainability real quick. It's good to see that more and more sports fans are coming around to the importance of athletes speaking out about anti-Black racism. So ESPN did a survey not too long ago, and these were the findings. Of the 71% of fans who supported athletes speaking out, 44% strongly supported it. Nearly half of the fans surveyed said they're more likely to support teams and athletes who speak out than they were last year. That's good. While 20% say they're less likely to support such teams and athletes, 33% were unchanged. Okay, but like, what's wrong with that 20% though? I mean, they must live under some big-ass ignorant rock, right? Speaking of people living under rocks, unfortunately, fans were divided on where that conversation, the conversation about anti-Black racism, should take place. 51% felt players should share their views during events, while 49% said they should speak out away from the field or court. I wonder what the breakdown is by race. Well, sis, I'm glad you asked. 76% of Black fans thought athletes should be speaking out while games are being played. So did 61% of Hispanic fans. And here's where the news gets a little more negative. Literally less than half of white fans felt the same at 46%. A lot of white folks are still holding back progress, as shown by this example, with the number of white fans who are showing support versus those who won't. Here's another stat to consider. Our man Kaepernick hasn't played an NFL game since the 2016 season when he knelt to protest anti-Black racism. Asked that the NFL should apologize to Cap, a slight majority of 54% said the league should definitely or probably apologize to him, while 36% of idiots still say they shouldn't. What the, hell, what the hell else do they need to know before realizing that Cap deserves an apology? Are they stupid or are they dumb? Are they dumb or are they stupid, Don? Both. Because among Black fans, 85% think the league should definitely or probably apologize. That number, again, is lower among white people, 49%. What? I don't understand how we can be so separate on this, on this topic. 85% of Black fans think the league should apologize and only 49% for white fans? What is there to not apologize for? Like, we literally know that Cap was right. So, like, is it that 15% of Black people and 51% of white people are extremely arrogant? <laughs> is, and, like, is that what it is? And him kneeling, and, and not, this is even, like, bad for me to say, but him kneeling did not interrupt the game. Oh! I don't What's know. What's the problem? I don't know. I don't know. So, I mean, look, I, I cook all the time. Patients, you cook too, right? Yeah, ma'am. Cook with bare onion, right? Yeah, you need it. Straight up. So we Black people, we love our flavor, obviously. But we should be careful, especially if our listeners are living on the West Coast. Onions from California, specifically from Thompson International Inc. of Bakersfield, California, are giving people salmonella. And we still don't know why. As of Friday, 339 people have gotten sick. Thankfully, there have been no deaths. The breakdown of confirmed cases includes 78 people in B.C., 208 in Alberta, 19 in Saskatchewan, 19 in Manitoba, 
only eight in Ontario, thankfully, six in Quebec, and one on Prince Edward Islands. So if you love onions, don't buy them from Thompson International. Buy them from another provider. Speaking of Thompson International, when are they going to arrest the killers of Breonna Taylor? I need you to arrest the killers of Breonna Taylor. All of y'all who think we still need evidence, you goofy. I said, arrest the killers of Breonna Taylor. You catch the vibe? Now get out the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, everyone. We're releasing pods on a weekly basis, so subscribe to stay up to date. Black people, you know this is a safe space for you. So if you have any feedback or questions, feel free to slide in our DMs. I'm on Instagram at Patience E. And I'm on Instagram at State of Vermont. See y'all next time. We'd also like to give a special shout out to Stephen Fissett, who graciously provided artwork to this podcast. If you like what you see, you can find him on Instagram at Scarborough Debutante. That's Scarborough, D-E-B-U-T-A-N-T-E, for all your graphic design needs. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.